church is through baseball, but they don't have any equipment. They don't have any balls. They're hitting rocks with sticks. And so he's trying to collect as much old gear as possible, from balls to old gloves. If anybody has anything like that that you would like to donate, I'm going to get that to her in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, I look around our garage as we moved, and we, we packed up a whole tote full of just ratty old baseballs that sometimes we in our country, we kind of take for granted because we just go buy a $4 baseball. No, no big deal. The, the country where she's, the part of, of Mexico where she's at is so impoverished, that's not even an option. And so, again, it just brings perspective um, to the world around us. So I want to lift up those three in particular. And I also want to just lift up that we have several people in the congregation traveling um, this month and, and today. So we have a lot of people that are out on the road traveling. We want to pray for their safety as well. So before we jump into the message, would you join me in prayer? Father God, we are uh, so thankful on this uh, beautiful sunny morning that we have an opportunity to come, that we have an opportunity to gather, to, to care for each other, to worship you. And most importantly, Father, um, we pray for this teaching today that we can just go deeper in your word. I pray that it impacts our minds, it impacts our souls, and it impacts our hearts for you. Father, I lift up J.T. Jarrett as he um, is speaking your word today to the congregation up at Morningside. I pray for Nikki Sanders and the people she's working with um, to battle this horrible epidemic of, um, of, of child human trafficking. It's becoming a more and more apparent issue in our world, and it's going to take people in your name, Father, to fight it and to meet it head on. And, and Nikki's made the choice um, to go and to fight as best she can. And so we lift her and her family up in prayers. We pray for her safety. We pray for ways that we can support her, and we thank you um, for her decision um, to do that. And Father, I also um, lift up the missionary in Mexico, um, just all the missionaries around the world who are doing their best to bring your name and your hope and your peace to this very crazy world that, that we live in right now. We just thank you for all those blessings. We pray for everyone who's on the road traveling, and we thank you for the many opportunities here that are growing at Whiting Christian Church. And it's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we go. It's time to start this morning, and we have a five-week series planned that is going to deal with worship to live by. And each week we're going to take a different worship song. Some of them are uh, contemporary songs. Some of them are traditional worship hymns. But what we want to do is focus on that particular song. We want to uh, focus on that particular songwriter because they have a story to tell, just like you and I have stories to tell. And their words, their hymns, their, their songs, their prayers... And when we think about worship and we think about that activity of exalting God, we want to always keep in mind that when we worship, we are praying. <laughs> we are bringing our best offering to God when we worship him. Hymns or worship music or any contemporary music, whatever kind of worship music it is, these songs are prayers. And they are expressions of our smallness in relation to God's bigness. Every one of them. And so it's serious business when we worship, and we want to do it well. And so when we sing, when we worship, we are exalting God. And that is why the subject of today's sermon, the person who wrote this beautiful song, Amazing Grace, John Newton, once wrote, because he wrote a lot of hymns, he wrote a lot of poems and prayers, he said, sometimes in the week it costs me so much thought and study that I can hardly do anything else. John Newton took hymn writing seriously. He took the prayers that he put together seriously. And John Newton was a minister in a small community in Overly, England, 
during the late 1700s. So about the time the American Revolution started, that's when John Newton writes this song. It was late December, 1772, and he was sitting in his study. He's 47 years old. He's sitting in his study, and he's trying to create a message. He's trying to develop a prayer that he could teach his congregation. This is a congregation of working-class families, people who had just enjoyed their Christmas break, what little time during the year they would have to be free from their toils and labors. They had about a four- or five-day stretch over Christmas where everybody kind of stopped working then. And so he had this moment to send everybody back to work at the start of the new year, and he wanted to give them something that they could really rest upon. He wanted to give them encouragement, he wanted to give them strength, and he wanted to give them hope. And so he begins to compile his ideas of what he's going to do. And it was during this week of December 1772 that he began to compose what would become the most well-known hymn I think, in the history of the world. The entire hymn of Amazing Grace was built on two words. They were two words that came to John Newton's mind as he reflected on the journey that brought him to the life that he now had of ministering to people. And those two words were wretch and saved. Wretch and saved. Now, for anyone who's under 20, and for a lot of us who may not be using the word wretch much these days, the most close synonym that I can put in modern-day language to wretch is despicable. So anyone under 20 think despicable me, and you know what kind of word that is. It's a word that shows a person of great misfortune, a person who is just a pathetic soul, someone who has no hope. That's a wretch. That is a despicable person. And John Newton realized that but for the saving grace of God, that was him. And so when he says, I have been saved, your grace saved a wretch like me, that's where this begins to go. And so it was on that December day that John Newton found this verse as he was studying. It's from 1 Chronicles 17, 16, and I think we have that to put up here. 1 Chronicles 17, 16 was the moment when King David makes this realization. If it's not coming up, that's okay. I'll, we'll just go with it. It's also in your notes here, by the way. First Chronicles 17, 16. David makes this realization. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? So David has this moment in his life that he accounts, that he looks back and says, God, how in the world did I ever get this far? And it's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to that question. The answer is, I got here because of you. And John Newton is sitting in this study, a 47-year-old pastor, and he is so moved by that verse because he knows that the only reason that he is now a minister of the gospel in this community in England was because of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the saving grace of God. And so he begins to pen this poem. You see, to understand the power of this hymn, to understand the good news that it expresses, you have to understand Mr. Newton's conversion. And to understand that moment, that evening when he finally submitted, you have to absorb the reality of this picture. And I hope that picture comes up. There it is. Remember, we're in the 1700s. And this 
was a slave ship. We talked about human trafficking and Nikki Sanders earlier this morning, so it's a little bit ironic. But that's a slave ship, and if you can tell from the screen, that would be the hull of the ship, the bottom. And what you see in this representation, and this is an actual map, is this was how the slave ship masters could figure out how many bodies they could put at the bottom of that ship so they could transport them for about a two-month voyage over to the Caribbean. And this was a time when the economic system of the world worked like this. Products were produced in the, the Americas that were developing. Those products were going to England. England needed more product, so they were giving guns and ammunition to African kings, and African kings, in exchange for guns, were sending slaves to the Americas. Called the Triangle Trade, if you remember your old history lessons. Over a 150-year stretch, 12 million people went on those ships. Many thousands gone, many souls, many people, freedom completely lost. And you have to understand this part of John Newton's story because John Newton was one of the captains of these ships. And there's a moment in John Newton's life after living basically 15 years, a life of debauchery, which I'm going to get into a little bit more. John Newton reckons with that decision. And don't we all do that? Haven't we all had those moments in our lives where we look back and go, oh, wow, I've made a mess of things. Oh, wow, I did something, and I'm not proud of that. I own that? And John Newton was starting to stir. And here's why he was starting to stir. Because when he was seven years old, he had a mother who sat with him every day, loved him, cared for him, nurtured him, began to grow him in his faith. But when John's was seven years old, his mom died of tuberculosis. His dad was out at sea. His dad only knew the life of the sea. And so for a year, his mom was gone and his dad was at sea. And he was sort of bounced around with relatives. Dad comes home, remarries right away, and marries a woman who more or less sort of pushes John to the side. So imagine the formative years of a young boy, from seven to 11, not having his mother, essentially not having his father, and having a very dysfunctional relationship with his stepmother. And I bring all of that up because I think it's always important when we look at other people around us, when we talk about grace, how important is it for us when we look at someone else whose life may be kind of a mess for us to get a little judgmental? But do we ever take time to understand their story? Do we ever take time to understand why maybe they got to the point to where they got? I don't think there's any coincidence that the choices that John Newton was making as a young teenager into his 20s had everything to do with the sense of abandonment, a sense of loss, perhaps nothing else that he knew, and he simply lived the life that he lived. And so it was on a night, March 21st, 1748, this slave ship that John was on, began to get rocked by a storm that came up. If any of you have ever been even out on an open lake water and a storm comes up, it gets kind of scary, right? Imagine being in the middle of the Atlantic. And the waves are rocking. And just as John is going up above to figure out what's going on, the man who's just above him gets swept overboard and he's never to be seen again. This is a bad storm. And by all indications, it looks like the boat's going to sink. And there was a moment that night where John Newton drew back to those early lessons from his mother, there was something that was still kind of holding him to faith, even though his life was so far from God. There was something holding him there, and he began to cry out to God. He says, God, if you just 
ease this storm, if you just save this ship, if you save me, I'm yours. And he cries out. Well, the evening goes on, the boat continues to get rocked, but eventually the storm subsides and the boat's on peaceful water. And John Newton survives. And so he looks back on that day and realizes, I was saved that day. Not only just physically, (laughs) but spiritually, I began the process of being saved. And so when we think of our lives, we think of those around us, we think about that moment. When was that moment when you gave your life to Christ? When was that moment when you realized, as that video said, it's not about us, it's about God. It's about what Jesus did on that cross And by submitting to that, it's that grace that saves us. The power of John Newton's story was not his sins. They weren't the series of unfortunate events that piled up one after another. The power of his story was his redemption. It was the day on that ship when the waves were crashing and the storm was all about and he cried out to God. It was that process that would take another 20 years for him to finally get to the point of ministry. But in that moment, his life began to change. At the core of our faith, at the core of our worship, is the simple yet so very profound message. And that's this. Your sins, your mistakes, my sins, my mistakes. In the eyes of a holy God, they will never bring us to God. They have to be reconciled. And we all fall short with our decisions. We all fall short because we're humans. And we sin and we fail. And it is Jesus who goes to the cross, who conquers death, who rises the third day, that saves us if we follow him. It's called grace, and it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing, amazing grace. It's amazing that the creator of this universe, with the power to breathe the whole world into existence, has a love so deep for us that he sent his one and only son to die for our sins. Through Jesus comes a grace that saves us, and there comes a grace that redeems us. Believe this or not, John Newton was actually fired. As I was researching his life, this is how it was described when he was fired as a teenager from his ship the first time he was with it. John Newton was actually fired from his first job for, quote-unquote, unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint. Translation, he drank too much and he swore a lot. Now, I want you to imagine this. How much do you have to drink, and how bad must your language be if you can't be a sailor? (laughs) Think about how bad that is. Think about that kind of a life of debauchery. John Newton, when he calls himself a wretch, he means, I was a wretch. I cursed at God. I cursed at everybody around me. I was an awful human being, and I was responsible for human trafficking. I was part of that problem. But slowly and surely as he gives his life to Christ, the Holy Spirit starts to indwell and he begins to transform. He begins to change. And that's the real power of this story. Because when he became saved, the Holy Spirit fills him. And I'm going I'm to give you what I learned from my almost six-year-old daughter. I shared um, a month, about a month ago, um, we had a baptism with our kids. And my almost six-year-old daughter wants to talk about baptism. And I said to Katie, I said, Katie, what do you think baptism means? And she looks me in the eye and she says, Daddy, it means that I'm going to follow Jesus 
and I want to leave my sins in that water. <laughs> that six-year-old, her mother's really smart. I give her all the credit in the world. <laughs> but isn't that, isn't that just as simple as it gets? I'm going to leave my sins in the water. I'm going to follow. And the key word that goes beyond grace is a word called redemption. We're redeemed. When we invite Jesus into our lives, when we leave those sins in the water, God's holy word promises us that the Holy Spirit is breathed into us. And that spirit helps direct our thoughts, our actions, our purpose. We're tied to that in our prayer. We're tied to that in our fellowship. We're tied to that common bond. And with that redemption comes a new adventure. It comes new purpose. It's living a life that glorifies God, that shares in that with those around us. And just as we learned this morning, it simply means now go and feed my sheep. What an adventure that could look like once we've reached that point. I am redeemed. So what does that look like? What does my life look like? What does your life look like through redemption? It means that all of my inadequacies, all my insecurities, all my frailties and failures can all be cast aside because if I trust God to live through me, I believe we can do anything. I believe he gives us the ability to do the things that maybe we thought we couldn't do. He gives us a life both of freedom and purpose, but also adventure. So back to John Newton for a second. Would you like a Paul Harvey moment, sort of the rest of the story? Let's pick back up with Mr. Newton for a second. So here's, a, here's at the time a 22-year-old man at the top of a ship crying out to God, please save me. Please save me. For 20 years, John Newton's faith journey took a little more of a step and a little more of a step. He began to get involved with ministers of the day like John Wesley, George Whitfield, some of the big names of the English Protestant movement. And he began to be trained as a minister until one day he finally became ordained, and here he is leading a church himself. He's 47 years old, December 1772, and he's writing, just about ready to write, Amazing Grace. Here's what happens next. This man who was once part of this awful thing called slavery becomes friends with a man by the name of William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce was a politician. He was in the British Parliament. And he was also a wealthy man. He just he had a lot going for him. He was a man of influence. He was a man of power. And he was a man with political power. And in 1785, William Wilberforce himself makes a decision for Jesus. Changes his life. And by then, he knows John Newton. And John Newton begins to have a lot of conversations with him. And William Wilberforce says to him, I'm not so sure if I should just leave the parliament, leave all this behind, and go a different direction. And John Newton reminds him of what Mordecai once said to Esther. In Esther, four, uh, I think it was 4.14. He says, in such a time as this, God will raise you up. Hold out for a little bit, William, because God may be using you right here, right now. Within 10 years, William Wilberforce, because of the spirit that he was indwelled with, worked tirelessly to end the slave trade in England. And by 1807, slavery was abolished in England, and it was 100% the responsibility of William Wilberforce, who was influenced by John Newton, the former wretch. That's God. That's redemption. That's what happens when we give our lives to Christ. We have no idea when we make that decision what adventure is planned for us, what good we can bring to this earth, and most importantly, what good we're going to bring to the kingdom someday eternally. 
And so that's the mindset that I want to have as we think about grace. I want you to see Romans 3, 23 here for a second. Because of grace, my first one was because of grace, we know our own limitations. That's when David said, how did I get this far? By the grace of God. But because of grace, we also live with much more humility. I love Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all, and we need to remind ourselves of this, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It brings a lot of peace to mind, doesn't it? All my frailties, all my sins, all my wretched behavior, it can be redeemed. I can make a different choice, and that choice begins by following Jesus. I can make a different choice. But it's not about me and what I do. It's about simply trusting Jesus, following him. It's powerful. And because of grace, and there's two sides to this coin, because you see the forgiven, us, me, the forgiven, must become the forgiver as well. I have to imagine at some point in John Newton's life, he had to reconcile the fact that his dad and him did not have a very good relationship. I got to imagine at some point in his ministry, and I want to do a little more study of, of his biography, but I have to believe at some point he had to make peace with his father. He had to forgive the abandonment. You see, when we're forgiven by God, we must be practicers of forgiveness ourselves. And that's hard, isn't it, sometimes? It's hard. And we heard about that last week as well. It's hard, but Jesus commands us, you must forgive. And Paul says it in Colossians 3.13. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Here's the biggie. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. What does that look like in our lives if we can release and forgive, knowing that we ourselves are forgiven? That's amazing, amazing grace. And it heals broken relationships. Grace heals fractured relationships. Grace is simply just that. It's amazing. So as we conclude this message and we conclude this morning, I just want to try to meet you where I think everybody is. And I think everyone is sitting here today in one of these four camps, maybe a little bit in two or three of them, if you will. There may be some of you today where your life is just a mess. <laughs> There's been decisions that have been made either by you or toward you, and you just feel like life is a mess right now. You feel like you're drowning. You're like John Newton. You're at the top of that ship, and it's getting pounded by the waves. For you, I would encourage you to simply do this. Know this truth. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can, in his name, seek forgiveness for any of those decisions. You can start today by following him. You can start today by giving your life to Jesus. You're one prayer away from forgiveness, one cry in the night, just like John Newton, from forgiveness of sins that you look back on. And if John Newton can look back at his life and see the trail of a mess that he left into his 20s, any one of us can do that very same thing. There's hope in that. Or maybe number two, and this is where it's just a time of reflection, 
You're looking back at life and you kind of had that moment. You've had that sort of, I'm, that, that conversion. I've given my life to Christ. But maybe you can just simply look back with reverence and awe as we sing this song one more time. And just like David and just like John Newton, you say, oh Lord, who am I that you delivered me this far? And you can simply stop and say, thank you, Father, for your saving grace. That's a moment of reflection, and it's powerful. It also brings a third thing, and that is simply, we may be thinking of ourselves in terms of just our humility. And we may be asking ourselves, what's next? Where's God nudging me next? What can God do through me? What can God do through us to have a powerful effect on the world around us? What choices can we make because of his grace that we can bring that grace to others? And finally, I ask everybody as we come and we reflect on this song one more time, when we sing it, I'd like to encourage everybody, is there anyone you need to forgive? Is there anything you need to bring at peace in your heart? Is there any people, are there any, any moments that you have to reconcile? And I would begin to offer you the opportunity to pray through that. Think about that. God's grace is amazing. With grace, the unforgivable becomes forgivable. But it's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus did for you. We want to be a community of believers that lives with the understanding that it's God's grace that sustains us, and it's through God's grace that we impact the world around us. Will you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we are just so thankful for gifted people in this world who have written beautiful music to honor you, to give us expression, to worship you. Father, I pray that as we study these songs, as we get deeper inside the lives of the writers, as we take a look at the theology and the scripture behind them, that you'll constantly remember, help us remember that the center of our faith is our relationship with you, your saving grace, what you did on the cross for each one of us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who hasn't made a decision for you, Father, I pray that they can seek me out today so that we can discuss the next steps for them to, to find you and to give their lives to you. And Father, for those of us who've had those moments where we have been saved, Father, I just pray that you continue to nudge us and push us in ways that will challenge us to continue to share the gospel with those around us. We thank you for the many blessings that you provide and most importantly, Father, we thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.